Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Ross Kemp, and this is the Kemp Cast. In this podcast, I'm joined by guests from all walks of life who all have engaging stories to tell, whether it's about their life, their career, or their expertise. I hope that if you listen to this series, not only will you learn something about the guests, but also about the world we live in. Joining me today is former RAF fighter pilot Mandy Hickson. She was one of the first women to fly the Tornado GR4 on the front line, completing three tours of duty and 45 combat missions. I hope you enjoyed the show. Mandy, thank you so much for joining me. Now, do I call you Mandy or should I call you Big Bird, which sounds so wrong? It does sound wrong, doesn't it? Yeah, but that was my call sign initially when I uh, first joined the Air Force. And, you know, I walked in hoping for the likes of Ice Maiden, and I was slightly disappointed because, you know, Sesame Street was on and I'm six foot tall. So they went, yeah, big bird. That's it. <laughs> and again, that, you know, some people may take that the wrong way listening to this, but that is part and parcel of being accepted by the group, isn't it? It is really. And, you know, it's a very interesting one, isn't it? Because I think you can always put any sexist bracket you want onto anything. But at the same time, this was 25 years ago, you know, more over that now. It was 1994 when I joined the Air Force. and It was a very different place to the one it is now. But it, it is. I mean, everyone had call signs. People, you know, one was called Box because his head was literally square. So, you know, you, you can be offended or you can go, yeah, I'm just going to be called Box the rest of my days, you know. Well, there's, there's a question for you. How much do you think it's changed now? I mean, you were the only the second woman, I believe, ever to be an operational fighter pilot in a war zone or a, a conflict zone. Um, how many more women fire pilots are there now do you know i don't know the actual numbers i know that there were only five women that actually flew the tornado gr4 when you think that's more people have walked on the moon than women have flown that on the uh, on the front line which is just crazy isn't it but things have changed you know for the better slightly we do see more women coming through it still sits and hovers around the 10% though, which I think is so frustrating because it's such a good career. It's exciting, it's challenging, it's all those things that you want, you know. Um, why wouldn't a woman want to do that just because she's a woman? And the Air Force have done an awful lot to try to get the numbers up, yeah. And we do see more women actually on the front line now. Quite simply, it, you know, having been fortunate enough to be transported around by the RAF or sometimes being made to wait for weeks and weeks to be transported. (laughs) Sounds familiar. Yeah, but obviously you know what I'm talking about. But the point being is there's a lot of people who fly aircraft in the RAF, but not many, male or female, make it to fast air to become a a fighter pilot, a jet pilot. Yeah. That is the, the pinnacle really, isn't it? It is. I think the statistics used to be something incredible. And I don't know if this is the case now, but about 3000 applicants, eventually of those one person would end up in a fast jet cockpit. So, you know, to say competition is fierce is an understatement. And, you know, at every stage, you know, you can of training, you you can basically, you know, fail it or get restreamed to fly something different as well. So, yeah, it's challenging to get through. Is that when you say into a cockpit, you mean as an actual flyer or as a navigator or both? Um, well, as an actual pilot itself. You've got a one in 3,000 chance. Yeah, well, it was in those days, yeah. It's, it's incredibly competitive. Your book's called An Officer, Not a Gentleman. But, you know, after 45 missions, combat missions, shouldn't it be called Fulfilling a Dream? Because it was always your dream, wasn't it? 
It was. In fact, I did almost call it dream it, believe it, do it, because that's, oh, look, sorry, it's behind me, yeah, because that's sort of like a mantra I've lived by, you know, of actually don't just have a plan, put it into action. Um, but you're right, it's, it is about fulfilling a dream, and it was my dream from being a very, very young girl and hearing stories of my grandpa, you know, who was a Second World War pilot himself, to actually you know, graduating when with him there on his 90th birthday, it was the most magical day. He came along as the guest of honour at my um, graduation as an officer from RAF Cranwell, College Cranwell, you know, and he was there and it was incredible. So yeah, it's, um, it is about fulfilling a dream. What did your grandfather fly? He flew Harvard's and Oxford's uh, and actually ended up as an instructor down in uh, Africa uh, during the uh, Second World War. Wow. Wow, an emotional day. It was, it, you know, it really was actually. In fact, I was just looking at a photo of it earlier on because um, I was doing something for my mum. And yeah, it really sort of struck home really. In fact, it was a really emotional day was, was actually, I was going through advanced flying training and we'd deployed out of RF Valley to, to Norfolk because the weather was poor. And we got a phone call at Norwich International Airport to say that my grandpa, you know, was well, not the the tunnel he didn't say this but I had to ring home and I heard that my grandpa was about to die and basically my instructor we were about to go and fly a combat mission over the wash and he basically said Mandy Humberside airport is 10 minutes in the air but it's a lot longer by train let's go and so we literally got into this hawk jet we flew across the wash we landed at Humberside and I got to be with my grandpa as he passed away which was you know, a really wonderful moment. And, you know, you talk about buying loyalty, you know, that single action probably bought more loyalty than any pay increase ever would. Yeah, because he he, he made that decision and, he, and off you went. And there's not many people that could just jump into a Hawks chair and detour from, from Norwich to Humberside <laughs> Aircraft. At what, what kind of speed were you probably doing? We, we completely stuck within the rules. Um, yeah, 70 on a motorway. <laughs> exactly. Can you imagine my mum though? She was like arrived at Humberside Airport and this jet comes in and her daughter gets out and, and the people went, oh, because it was unusual to see a hawk landing. And she went, that's my daughter. <laughs> it was a classic moment. Talking of your mum, Mandy, um, she was quite an inspiration, wasn't she, for you? Not only for you and, and your sister, I think you mentioned. Um, what kind of lady is your mum? Uh, she's incredible, actually. Yeah, she is a really strong woman. And yeah, I mean, my mum and dad split up when I was quite young, when I was about two. I mean, I'm still really close to my dad as well. And he's, you know, a great guy. But my mum particularly, you know, this was a time when not many people were divorced. And so she basically brought up two very strong women. And I think having her as a role model for us to aspire to be like her was really important. And I know that when I was first interested in flying, you know, she was the one that encouraged me to do it. And she always said, you know, if it's going to be someone, Mandy, why shouldn't it be you? Um, and I really like that because it was this whole feeling of you've done everything in your power. Now it's just about actually hoping the system would change and, uh, you know, allow you to get in. Yeah, because your dream wasn't even possible when you when you went into the RAF, was it? They, they weren't they didn't have female fighter pilots at all. You know, as well as I did during the Second World War, there were a whole crop of women that were used to fly Spitfires to and from the front line, effectively. Absolutely. But at all points, they could have been intercepted by 109s or whatever enemy aircraft were in the air at the time. So, you know, it went backwards, didn't it, after the Second World War? Yeah, it did, really. And I think it was always this political statement, this political question of, Will it change the dynamic on the front line? Would uh, the British public be in support if a woman got shot down and taken prisoner of war, as opposed to a man? How would it change things as well within the teams on the front line as well? And you've done a lot of work on the front line, haven't you as well? You know, seeing that for real and seeing how women have integrated in. And, and guess what? Mixed gender teams outperform single gender teams in every single occasion. So there's no, there was no reason. And thank goodness the, you know, the military came around. In fact, the RAF was the very first of all of the um, services to allow women into every single one of their trades. Yeah, and, and, and rightly so. Um, some of the fiercest, the most angriest people I've ever met um, are from the opposite sex. And I have to say that. <laughs> yeah.
rightly so, you know, they make, I think they make good fighters and they're generally a bit more considered than some men I've met, including myself. But let's move away from that. Um, you know, again, you know, you have faced monumental failures in terms of reaching your dream. You get your degree from Birmingham uh, and, and the RAF say they'll, they'll take you on and they give you a bursa for your last year. But then they're only considering you for, what was it, air traffic control, is that right? Yeah, it was really frustrating. You know, they changed the rules in my second year of uni. So I applied to join and then I failed all of the aptitude tests, which are all done on a computer. Um, you're allowed to take them twice and then I took them the second time and I failed them again. And that, that's why that was really the end of the line for me. And that's when I got offered this bursary as an air traffic controller. I just kept thinking, oh my gosh, I'm signing up to an entire service career to do a job I don't want to do, especially when I knew I was capable of flying. And that was one of the real frustrating things. But, you know, this is where we always need people to believe in us. And I was on this club, the University Air Squadron in Birmingham, and the boss of that squadron just said to me, this doesn't seem right. You've proved yourself to be a really good pilot. And I just won this aerobatics competition against sponsored male pilots. And he said, maybe the system is flawed. Maybe it's unconsciously biased towards men. And there was a reason for that. It's because the tests were designed by men for men for men to pass because women weren't doing that job. So it takes sometimes people to come through a system to challenge a system a little bit. And fortunately, he was willing to go that extra mile for me and, and challenge the system. But, but, but let's go for the, for the people, the unknowing, like myself. Just aptitude is a way of doing something, isn't it? Having aptitude is, the, is finding a way to do something or, or having the ability to do so. How were they male skewed? So basically, they'd been designed in almost like the Cold War. Uh, and really, they didn't reflect the aircraft that we were flying on the front line at the time. But all I can say is that the results were skewed, as in about 70% of women that took the tests failed them, whereas at the time about 70% of men passed them. And also they saw a completely dis different distribution curve as to who passed it, like the majority of men. So some failed, some passed to a really high level, but it was a classic bell curve. For women, the majority failed, but the ones that passed, passed at an incredibly high level. And so they said, gosh, this is really strange. We're seeing it very differently. So they said, we don't know how, but basically we need to go back to psychometric testing to get psychologists involved to say, are these tests in some ways slanted towards the male brain over a female brain? And they did make, the, they did make some changes. In fact, that was the most stressful flight of or simulation of my entire life was the day I went back and, and they got me back to retest them. But, but, but again, that's about being able to, which you obviously can do because you were beating males in aviation, in the air, you were beating males. You know, the competitions that you were winning, you're often going up against people who on paper are supposedly far better than you and you were just, you were just beating them. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was one of those anomalies. Frustrating, was it? Incredibly frustrating. And I mean, to say devastated at that point would be an understatement because, and I can remember the office when I got this letter saying, you know, we're going to give you this opportunity to join the Air Force, but not in the branch that you wanted. And, and actually, I'd passed to a really high level as navigator. So I'd sort of got my head around the thought of, OK, even if I can't fly in the front seat, I'm going to be a navigator. And then it was said air traffic controller. And I just thought, I'm not even going to be airborne. And that is when my heart sank. I remember just sobbing. <laughs> and this guy must have thought, I'm not quite sure what to do with this. <laughs> but, you know, it was fantastic to get his support. And also, it would have been, it was, a, it's like training to be, I don't know, it's like training to be a fisherman and you're put in a lighthouse. Yeah. I always, I think the really good analogy is jumping off a cliff and hoping your parachute will open. So that's what I did. I felt like I joined the Air Force thinking and hoping I'd get this change and just prayed that the chute would open, you know. What, 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 what does being in the air and being in control particularly something like the aircraft that you, you, you've flown, a tornado, oh, what does it feel like? I often describe it as dancing in the air, which I know sounds really feminine, doesn't it? It sounds a bit crazy. Boxers refer to dancing around the ring. I don't think that's necessarily feminine. Yeah, it's sort of like, it's, it's poetry really. I mean, especially when you got to fly the tornado. I mean, my favourite thing in the world 
was low level. And that's why I chose to be a bombing pilot, ground attack pilot, rather than a fighter, The you know, like the uh, Tornado F3, because I loved low level. I loved precision. I love the challenge of it. I love the attention to detail. I love the power of it. Nothing better. Lighting your burners, getting thrust back into your seat, you know, feeling that lateral acceleration when you're taking off. I mean, it is. You can barely take the grin off your face when you do that. The first time it's like, oh, my God, I've bloody done it. Um, it was brilliant. And, and you know what? It was it was a privilege to fly it because I do think that the tornado in a lot of people's eyes is a really iconic jet. You know, it was there right at the forefront of operations for so many years. I um, I used to go uh, walking up in the Western Isles of Ross and I can remember being up. I mean, you're talking how low you guys go, uh, guys and girls, be careful what I say. But I can remember, you know, we weren't up high, yeah. but we were, you know, we'd be climbing for about two, three hours and seeing two beautiful tornadoes come screeching through the valley. I mean, just immense. I mean, the closest I've ever come, I mean, I, I went up in a, um, uh, in a Sea Harrier, a two-seater Sea Harrier, obviously two-seater. Uh, we actually we actually got into, it was um, uh, Fleet Air Arm, obviously. Um, but we, there's a question I want to, I've always wanted to know the answer to, and I never got the chance to ask it. So we basically, they tried to lock onto each other, him and the other Harrier, uh, the pilot in the other Harrier. Um, and we're putting some Gs, even though it's not the fastest aircraft, quite maneuverable aircraft, um, from what I've been told. Oh, but is, yeah. we, we start with, so we go up to thing called Angel Speed, they go straight up, break through the clouds. It's the most amazing sensation. You know that better than probably most. Yeah. Um, and then they would try and link onto each other, but they would fly in these kind of banking, these incredible banks, pulling Gs. But we'd start over Southwest England and within under a minute virtually, we'd be over Liverpool. How did they know that they weren't flying into the airspace of Birmingham City Airport or Cardiff? Because that was literally the trajectory we took from Yeovilton over to Liverpool, over to, you know, Morecambe Bay type. So they were locking or trying to lock onto each other and successfully doing it a couple of times, flying, but how did they not collide or see any other aircraft? How did they know they weren't going to bump into them? Well, to be honest, they're Sea Harrier pilots, so they probably had no idea, to be honest. <laughs> um, oh, sorry, that's the Navy banter. Um, no, I'm married to one. It's all right. It's the senior service, apparently. I'm told that daily. Do you know what? It's incredible. So you're talking to fighter controllers at that point, um, and they're doing air combat. So they're called single circle fight and, and two circle fights. Really exciting stuff. Oh, amazing. Go yeah, on. but they're listening on their headsets the whole time. You've also got certain, it's called general airspace, you know, where it's pretty much clear airspace. And then you have these, these travel corridors. So it's as if you've got a motorway that goes through the sky at a certain height, certain distance. And so, so long as you don't go into those actual corridors, you're okay. Uh, and you know, you would be working really closely with air traffic control and fighter controllers who will be basically saying, oh, you're coming up to controlled airspace, be aware it's five miles on your nose. And then they'll go, oh, thank you very much. They'll turn back. At the same time, that's inputting, and this is the thing about how bright you have to be to do what you've done. You are inputting such information, you're getting, receiving it, it's coming left, right and centre at you. And also at the same time, particularly operational, you're trying to avoid being hit, hit by a surface-to-air missile. It's incredible, actually. But if you think about anything in life, you know, when you first say, when you first started acting, you know, you'd be thinking all about your lines. But then as you get really much better at it or you get into a character, that becomes more natural and you can therefore focus on the new bits. So if you think about flying training, it's all about blocks. They build you up, they build you up. Each time you go through a course, it's double the speed, double the speed, double the speed. So you're not just getting straight into a mighty powerful tornado. You know, you've gone up to a hawk. And also the massive difference of when you're flying, I'd say the most capacity sapping aircraft is the Hawk, which was your advanced flying training. So that's the one that's based at RF Valley and Anglesey. And for us, we didn't have any GPS. We had no head up display. You've got no moving map. You've literally got a paper map, a stopwatch and a basic compass. And you're doing all of the arithmetic in your head. Now while you're, while while you're, you're flying. flying, yeah. So that is the make or break point. That's where they decide, has someone got the capacity to go to the front line. So once I got to the tornado, I was like, I got in, I was like, oh my God, I've got a moving map. I've got a head up display. I've got someone sitting 
in my back seat to help me. So suddenly I'm not training now to be chopped. I'm not training to see how much capacity I've got. I'm actually in a jet that is basically helping and aiding me with my capacity and my situational awareness. You know, you've got lots of tools to assist you, which you didn't have when you were flying the Hawk because they were wanting to test you and push you to your limits. You know, they describe the Hawk, sorry, as a doing an advanced driving test twice a day for 10 months. It's really stressful. Well, well, apart from anything, you are also flying how much worth of equipment? Yeah, so it's about £35 million, pounds, uh, the tornado. Um, so, you know, and that's without all the bombs strapped on it. <laughs> well, you know, I can only go from something that happened now, uh, up and out when I was out in Afghan once, was where um, guys loaded up fuel onto an Apache. They had a load of SF guys just about to take off in, um, in Chinooks and the Sea King. And uh, they got a brownout and they, it smashed into two with all the Hellfire missiles uh, on it, 30 cal. And when they opened the cab, they got out, they started swinging punches at each other. Now, I know why they started swinging punches at each other. It was because each was blaming the other for, for, for the brownout. But a brownout's a brownout. I actually got blamed in the newspapers for that. Really? Because, well, when the, when the document came out about all the, the things that had affected the incident, the fact that I was in the locale was put down there and that was the only name that wasn't redacted from the from the oh. uh, court. So yeah, I don't know how that really happened. That's but... a bit harsh, isn't it? You're like, I can't control the weather. It was a bit, we didn't even bother to film it either because we weren't allowed to, we knew we'd never see the light of day. But um, that, that pressure is, again, you know, every time you take off, there is a chance that you may have to eject. It could be through no fault of your own, but, you're flying 35 million pounds worth of kit. Yeah, yeah, you are. And, you know, I mean, I had the starkest reminder of that ever going through the conversion unit. The operational conversion unit was up at Lossie and um, uh, we helped these, the senior course, there was a basically it's called the, the weapons instructors course, qualified weapons instructors. Top of the game. These guys are the best of the best within the tornado world. They're coming through to do this course. And we helped uh, a navigator and a pilot help them plan their mission. And they went off that day and they never came back. Um, and they, they basically crashed into the ground uh, just in the gap near Newcastle. And, you know, Dickie Wright and Sean Casabeo. And it was, was probably, in my mind, one of the most traumatic days because it was the waiting. Uh, you know, we'd literally seen these guys go and help them photocopy a map and said, there you go, mate. And they'd gone. And then just sitting there, we'd heard that the aircraft had crashed. And you're just waiting and it's horrific. Um, whether you're a man or a woman, I don't care. You know, these are colleagues and these are friends. And this was right at the start of our training on the, on the uh, tornado as well. And is that always going to be the back of your mind? Bizarrely, yes and no. You're aware of the dangers, but if you were to be consumed by them, you would never be able to do your job. And so one thing that I would say about the, the, the pilots that I've met that end up flying fast jets is that they tend to be really good at compartmentalizing things. And I know that sounds crazy, but something happens and you go, okay, say, say you're flying a flight and something happens and you think, oh God, I've probably failed that flight now. The people that then end up getting chopped are the ones that go, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. You know, and they just basically self-flagellate. Whereas the ones that go, that happened, but you know what, so what, let's crack on. It's almost saying there's a mindset there. I'm not willing to let the next hour, two hours be dictated to by a mistake I made in the first minute. And you see it all the time. And it's, a, it's an ability to compartmentalize your feelings completely. I, I think it's very diff different when you're traveling at the speeds that you guys travel at. But it's like you know, the idea is that once you've made your first mistake, while you're thinking about that first mistake, you're making your second mistake. Yeah. Uh, what you have to do is, as you just said, you've just got to get on with Crack on, push on, right? Yeah. Move on, leave it, drop it. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Look, you know, you've been up in it, you've been out on the ground operational. Um, I will come to the relationship between a pilot and a navigator in a minute. But you've been on a bomb run or whatever you were doing, whether you were patrolling, and your navigator says to you, you know, missile inbound, a missile that potentially will take your life. What goes through your mind at that second? Well, fortunately, when it did happen to me, um, my nav literally yelled, break right. Um, and at that moment, you stick in the cassette, which says there's a missile launched. And so you instantly do a maneuver that you have been trained to do so many times. And I practiced it loads as well sort of, you know, in peacetime at home and suddenly you're doing it for real. And so you just go boom, boom, do the maneuver. You know, we put out the decoy, which was the flares um, and it acts, you know, completely and utterly decoys this missile. It goes from being locked on. We saw this missile go from being locked on to pulling off on our flares and it exploded about two miles away from the jet. And we saw it was like a big, like sort of fountain firework going off. It's this training that you go, go back to that, Again, practice in the sim, practice for real. So when something happens, you can carry out it by rote almost, and then you free up the capacity to make the decisions that are outside of the norm. Yeah, but again, how did you actually feel after you saw that that missile explode behind you? Was it where you were already moving on? You were going on to the next bit of the, of the job, or were you going, that could have been us? No, not at all. And in fact, absolutely not. I get compartmentalised feelings. So this is a case of just been shot at. We radio through what had happened. Commander in chief, who's in an AWACS aircraft, says, stand by. We knew that basically the way it worked is that once uh, an aggressive act was made towards any one of the coalition forces at that time, you were normally tasked to prosecute an attack on a target. So the next call we are now waiting for is, right, you're tasked to go and take out your response option, which for us was a radar station that we were holding the details of. But we're running out of fuel. So it's a case of, okay, decision-making, right? What are my options? What's the diagnosis of the problem? What options do I have? Get the team to give you the input, make a decision, give everyone their jobs, and then you're off, you know, reviewing it and back to the start. So we, you know, you're not just thinking, oh my God, that's awful. We've been shot at, it's terrible. You're just following again, the process and the protocol. When you land, I can tell you that is a slightly different scenario because it's on reflection as you're sitting there watching the dawn come up, because this was in the middle of the night, you know, we got this, we had this like hubbly bubbly apple flavored tobacco sort of thing that was sitting around the outside of the block. And we, I remember getting back and the sun was just coming up and someone had someone's wife had sent them a gin and tonic miniature because it was alcohol free out there. And, and they went, let's crack open the gin. And it was, it was a minute, there was eight of us. Can't, can't see us right now. It's like the length of your, your middle finger, less than that possibly, yeah? Yeah, yeah. But it was, it was one of those things. And then suddenly you do start to reflect on that was pretty dangerous. That could have been us. And quite often to go back to my mum's sort of side of it, 
I would often sort of ring home to say, just so that you know I'm okay. And she'd go, good, why? We haven't heard anything. I was like, well, just if you hear anything in the news, just to let you know, I'm safe. And she's like, well, good for you. Well done you. <laughs> but she always said afterwards, she was relieved when I got home. Let's talk about dropping bombs. Uh, I uh, have been, <laughs> I've been under uh, aircraft uh, just as they're just about to drop them. And I've sat with JTACs. They're on the ground. They can be SF, they can be Special Forces, JTACs as well. But yeah. they, are, they are helping you to locate yeah. the target. So they talk you in. So basically we would train with them all the time, from often from Hereford area and around South Wales, let's just say. And they would be talking you in. And it was quite, it was always fun doing the training with these guys, you know, because you have this set performance called a nine line of information. And, you, you know, they basically, as they're talking you in, they're going, you know, large barn and you're going visual barn they're going left of barn and you're like tree yeah visual tree bottom of tree fence post you know and you're sort of going big to small to small to small to tiny and that's your target so they are basically really getting they get their mouth music so that they can be really accurate in guiding you visually onto a target if their guys are in the field and need help it's an incredible skill isn't it and and, and when it goes wrong which sadly i it has gone wrong um, in the past. Um, you know, you have a blue on blue. You have a, a friendly forces incident, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've lost, again, a, a, one of my old instructors in a blue on blue. Um, Kev Main and uh, Dave basically were recovering back to base and they were targeted by a Patriot American missile. Misidentified, it shot them down. You know, they thought it was a, an incoming uh, anti-radiation mit- missile to the base. Uh, right at the start of Gulf War Two, and um, they they basically took them down. They both died in the incident. It was awful. It was absolutely horrific. And and sadly, it happens not on a frequent basis, but it does happen. It's part and parcel of sadly of war. That's the reality of it. And I'll tell you one thing that really sticks in my mind was when we were at Kajaki, we went up to the flat uh, on the northern side of, of the dam, and. Um, I can remember that uh, a load of, of, I think, a lot of bombs had just been dropped on that particular area, on that village. And I remember picking up a piece of shrapnel from a 200-pounder bomb and just imagine what that would be like, flying, whipping, zipping through the air, the damage that that would do, did to to compound walls, let alone what it would do to flesh and, and bone. Is that something that you ever contemplated before you dropped? Not to that degree, I will be brutally honest. You know, obviously, of the impact, you know of the implications of what you will be doing, but you don't, I don't think that you probably go through that whole, you know, flesh and bone sort of feeling to it. I don't think you can really, because actually for yourself, you are in your office environment and you are doing a job. You're tasked to do the job. Your time to debate whether it's the rights or wrongs is not then. That is not anything that goes through my mind at all at that point um you know on one mission there was one mission I went on which sticks in my mind which was basically when we went up um we were tasked it was when um, George Bush had just taken over and I think he wanted to go I can do as well as my dad and basically he tasked us on this really huge mission to go up way further north towards Baghdad than we ever had done and um we were tasked to take out a fiber optics building and basically, I was, I was what's, it was a cooperative attack. So basically, I was simply doing a laser de- designation for my wingman, who was going to be dropping his weapon on the target. And I'll be honest, you know, we went in and we were, we were, you know, lasing our, our target, which was the door area of this building, because we wanted to go, so you can actually really change the fuse settings on weapons so that you're not having them detonating immediately. You want them to have impact if you want it to go into the, you know, in the basement, you set a few setting that allows for that to happen. And basically when we, the, the, the weapon went in, it exploded, you know, it was like successful attack, right, go south. I mean, there was weapons going off all around us. It was like 4th of July, sort of amazing, sort of, you know, a lot of trace around was up that night as well. Anyway, we landed and there'd been an unmanned aerial vehicle above us who had been monitoring that site and that um, drop. And when we watched it, we watched this man and he basically was in the building we were about to drop on. And it was a fiber optic, I say fiber optic center. And he opened the door and he was having a cigarette and you can see it on infrared because he's got this hot cup of tea and you can see 
the, this glowing bright white and his cigarette glowing. He finishes his tea and he throws it on the floor. You see the hot tea on the floor as well. He opened the door, he shut the door, the weapon went in from the other side, blew up the building. He opens, and I thought, oh God, this is, this is the reality of what we've done. He opens the door and he runs out and he gets into his car and he just drives straight through a fence, straight into the desert. And I'll be honest, a lot of me at that point went, oh, thank God he got away. You know, because when you're doing your job, you're not doing it because you want to kill people. That is not the job. You are doing it because you're tasked, you know, um, to actually carry out a mission uh, which has a tactical level of importance. And the reality is, though, that your actions will obviously cause loss of life. But if you have not got that into your head before you join the military, then you should not be joining the military. You know, if you're training to be a tornado pilot, it's not because you want to fly aerobatic maneuvers at air shows. You know, it's because you want to do the job. And part and parcel of that is going to war. And also part and parcel of that, sadly, is collateral damage, isn't it? It's when civilians are killed and that happens. It, it, does. it does. But I mean, I think in my own experience on that as well, and, and yes, I know it, of course it does happen. But I, the Brits that I worked with, you know, many, many times we bought our weapons back because we could not positively identify the target. I was on one target when I was literally a couple of seconds to bomb weapons release and my nav shouted, stop weapons went safe you know master arming all safe we weren't going to drop and I said why what happened he went there's a bloke in the camel and ours was not a high level target it was simply there was no collateral damage so even if he was to be injured in that that was not an acceptable risk and what I would say is all the Brits that I ever worked with they had that mentality that it's okay not to drop a weapon we're not gung-ho we're not irresponsible you know, if you can sit within the rules of engagement and do your job with harming no civilians, then you would do. If you are going to harm a civilian, then then you don't you don't drop your weapons. And that's where it was when I was out there. Uh, what about Mandy? There were some some pilots. Uh, I think it was Gulf War One that actually, when it came to actually dropping bombs, they said that they didn't want to do it. Can you remember that? To be honest, so I was I was fairly young actually. So I was at school for Gulf War One. I'm not saying that you're a lot older than me or anything at all, Ross. Uh, <laughs> Certainly am. That would seem to be like being a footballer and not wanting to kick football. To me, that would be like that. Yeah. Um, it's not like you're conscripted. It's not like you can be a conscientious objector and go, actually, I don't really want to do that war. Um, but I know what was interesting actually when Gulf War One came along, you know. The tornado had just been practicing, practicing, practicing against the Cold War threat. Gulf War One was not a Cold War threat. The flying they were doing would be a very different set of skills. You know, that sort of penetration and things like that was very, very different. And so they were learning things, you know, on literally on the hoof as they were doing it. Um, things that perhaps they wouldn't have trained quite as much to do. And, you know, sadly, you saw, you know, quite a lot of that footage. I remember that. Do you remember that GMTV footage of that tornado going in and you see the shadow? And at one point, the shadow almost hits the aircraft and you think, yeah, that's not good. You know, um, that's why I think we lost a couple of aircraft in the training for it because people are trying to go in really low. But that wasn't that one of the things that was discovered that we, we are, um, sorry, we, you, uh, the RAF are famous for their ability to fly at low level, but there was no real advantage to that in Gulf War One. In fact, the higher you went, the less chance you have of getting getting hit um, um, from the ground or hitting the ground. Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting because obviously Gulf War One is really relevant at the moment. It's its 30th anniversary. And so I've been watching loads of footage. To be honest, I have been really quite blown away to see some of the footage that I hadn't ever seen before, just seeing the might of air power that was going in, but also seeing the amount of surface to air missiles. Now I know what I went up against in the build up to Gulf War II, and it was sort of like a missile here, a missile there. On these maps, it's like, they're all overlapping. It's like, how are you gonna get through? So that's where they were trying to, if you can imagine a surface to air missiles, it's cone that goes up is like, um, you know, a funnel. And basically, if you can get the whole principle of going low is that you can track that, get closer to it at the point where you're not, if you're up here, you, you're in the zone, you can get shot down. But if you're down here, 
you can get a bit closer you can sneak in and so that's that was the philosophy now that obviously then changed because in the run-up to gulf war ii when i was doing uh, defending the no-fly zone all of our missions were high level missions i can remember you know one of the things that used to really make me wet my pants not literally but sort of metaphorically oh man i've been a little bit of dribble occasionally um oh, was when when the jtac called bombs gone and you couldn't even see the aircraft yeah see it with the naked eye and you'd just be counting down for the splash hoping beyond a hope that it wasn't going to land on you on you and that's a really odd feeling particularly for an actor lovey uh to go and and, and admittedly you know we got one one gets human beings can get used to anything and you do get used to it but i never got used to that one i could get used to contact yeah got used to that but that one just the idea of that thing being in the air falling through the air and not knowing 100 yeah. percent and 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 you know god even at uh you know even at half a mile it could pull the the velcros off your body armor the shock wave of, of that kind of ordinance i don't think until you're actually on the ground and you feel that it's very difficult to explain to someone who's not been through it just the the power yeah. and the release the immediate release yeah of, of energy when you're when you're close to it how that feels and god knows what it feels like to be underneath it um thankfully i never have done friends have sadly and some have survived yeah. um do you pick your navigators do you have that kind of um top gun relationship uh with goose uh or, or are they just it just happens to be bob this week or it happens to be jim next week or sarah so, so as you get more seniority on the squadron, it seems that you get to fly with the people that you want to fly with a little bit more, should I say. But in those first few, you know, um, times that I was in the Gulf, you know, it was a case of you're, you're with so-and-so. And I was like, oh, fucker. You know, my heart fell a bit because he was not my favourite nav to fly with. I think in my second and third tours, I flew with navs I really liked, you know, the great relationship with as well. And... And also you've got to know everyone a bit better. I'd only just pitched up. I'd only, they'd, A, they'd never had a woman pilot on the squadron before. So, you know, they're getting used to me and suddenly, you know, it's like, who am I being tasked with? And he probably thought, oh my God, I've got the new girl. Nightmare. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting one. But what generally happens is they try to put inexperienced either crew with a senior other crew so that you might have, say, the boss flying with the junior pilot. You know, you might quite often get that if he's a nav or vice versa. And we saw that all the time. I, I just, I, I, when I was reading um, the book and, and my notes, I, I laughed about um, you being told to be more feminine. I mean, you're very feminine. I mean, what, but what, but what is that about? I think the Air Force was still just in the dark ages, basically, and, and officer training, you, I mean, I had a dodgy beige suit, you know, and it was all that sort of thing. And I mean, I had quite short hair as well. In fact, just before I'd gone, I think for some bizarre reason, she said, the hairdresser went, do you want me to cut it a bit shorter? I was like, yeah, I do. And she actually ended up shaving it at the back. I was thinking, oh my God. So anyway, I turned up and I had a really, really traditional flight commander. So he's the man that's in charge of your 10 people on your flight. And basically your world sits with him. If he likes you, great. And if he doesn't, you're buggered. And um he basically was an introvert and I am as far extrovert as it comes. I know that's going to shock you, Ross. Um, yeah, I am over by that one. I, can, I know, I can imagine. And so we'd be in the bar and basically you'd go, you know, go and get around him for your, your flight. And it was a case of nine pints of beer, wait for this, and two halves because you were not allowed as a woman at the time to drink pints in the college hall officer's mess. But he said, and when I said to him, he said, be more feminine. And he said, you do, you know, you do drink pints. I said, I always drink half pints. He goes, yeah, but you do drink two. And then this order of be more feminine. I was like, you're training me to be a killer. How does that work? The more that you try to, you, 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 you face all those challenges, all those knockbacks, the attitude test, um, you know, we want you to be a traffic controller or, you know, you're gonna be a navigator you clearly are way beyond the average ability of most fire pilots or almost pilots. Um, and you're still, as you're trying to be accepted into a group which is predominantly male, you're still being knocked back for not being female enough. Yeah, it, it was difficult actually. I mean, that really just, that just annoyed me more than anything else. And I just thought, oh, don't put me into some box. Don't categorize me. 
um, I think it really hit home though about the how different it was was when I got to my first squadron because you know I, I arrived on the squadron and I was the only woman you know and up to that point there'd often been another woman on a course in front or a course behind and I was with this band of brothers going through training and these were like my best mates in the world and suddenly you get to the front line and you don't know anyone I only knew one guy not even that well from a few courses above me and they don't know me. And I walk in and the first day I noticed all the screensavers in this, let's call the junta, the junior officer's career room, all the screensavers were naked women. So I subtly made them into naked men. And then the next day they were all landscapes. So, you know, it was all these tiny little things. The fact that actually there was no kit designed for women. So you were wearing male long johns, which had a wife front in them. I mean, Marks and Spencer sold women's long johns. Why the hell couldn't I just get a pair from there? But no, they, it has to be military kit, and the military didn't have any female underwear. I am going to have to ask you that question because you're sort of like you're, you're skirting around the issue here. Um, how do you go to the toilet in a water bottle when you're flying a tornado? <laughs> I would say with difficulty or unsuccessfully. So on one of my tours out there, I basically was. You can't get. You need to. If you eject, you need to be hydrated. So one of the big things is fly hydrated at all times, you know, and I was their combat survivor and rescue officer as well. So, you know, I was the one that was preaching this. So I was like, must be hydrated. All the guys you get out to the jet have a wee by the side of the jet, you know, behind the sun shelter. For me, that would involve taking literally all my layers of kit off and what, sitting there with all the ground crew watching me. So I never did that. So you've not had that last wee that the men have had. And then you get into this jet and of course you're up there for four hours. Um, I had this water bottle next to me and I thought, I know I'm going to wee in the water bottle. So I had to drink the water. So I drank the water from the water bottle. And then I managed to, you have to put your seat pin in, your ejection seat pin in so that the seat can't fire. We're over a war zone and I am basically stripping off in the front seat. And my nav is, is going uh, SA6, surface to air missile, basically. He's looking at this screen. He's going, Mandy, there's an SA6 uh, in our right two o'clock. They're looking at us. I was like, will you shut up? I'm trying to have a wee and relax here. And every time I was about to, release the motion he would say there's another one it's in our left too and I was like fuck and in the end I didn't manage to bloody go and he was like just piss yourself you know what's the matter you know for goodness sake man don't give yourself another infection I was like no I'm fine I'm gonna bloody well sit with it oh it was so frustrating I never ever was successful in weeing in an airplane let's just talk about where you are now um you know um you're out now of the RAF. You have been for a few years now. Um, you are in, in big demand in terms of motivational speaker. How do you um, connect your experiences in the RAF to civilians like myself? What aspects do you draw from in terms of your own personal journey? So the lovely thing is, is that actually... When you regale someone, A, people learn by storytelling. We know that, don't we? So you don't ever remember facts and figures. If someone sits there and you think, oh, I can't remember anything of what they've told me, but I do remember this story about blah, blah, blah. So everything, everything that I say, if it's a message I'm trying to get across, for example, a teamwork message, I might share a story about my guys helping me um, cycling to do, learn battle turns so I didn't get chopped, you know, and, you know, something like that. Um, if I'm talking about leadership, I might talk about the mission that I was on in Iraq and basically talk about how we empower our teams. You know, how do we make good decisions? You know, teach them, you know, actually share a decision making model that we use in aviation. Um, you know, little things like that. So you're just getting these nuggets, you know, this mantra we have of control the controllables. And if you can't let it go again, you know, I was flying across the Atlantic. 9-11 is happening. You know, we have no idea what's happening, but you've got to control the controllables, you know, or, you know, we're in thick cloud. Are we going to have a mid-air collision because everyone's being turned away because there's chaos? So again, you, it's about taking a story, but making it into translatable key messages that they can actually apply to their own businesses and their own lives. And I think that whole piece around resilience is so important at the moment as well. And, you know, I've, I mean, nothing like you, but, you know, I've done Kilimanjaro recently and I got very very ill in the final stages of it and again yes my own resilience but actually my team were the ones that got me through by feeding me a lot of Imodium basically <laughs> making me drink eight liters of water um, but you know it was that whole dig deep and I think people need to hear those things even at the moment 
when actually we are having to find resilience in ways that we never would have expected, you know, to need. Can I just say, Manny, the book is fantastic. Um, you are inspirational um, and you are a true success story. And it's been an absolute joy talking to you. Thank you so much. Can I show it, Ross? Can I show the book? Put it up, put it up. So yeah. there you go, guys. An officer, not a gentleman. Um, yeah. No, but you are a fine, fine human being. And it's absolute, an absolute joy, Mandy. Absolute joy. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for asking me to join you, Ross. It's honestly been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Kempcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Kemp and on Instagram at Ross Kemp TV. This has been a Freshwater and a Chance at Collective production. And until the next episode, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 